Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the studio at the Media Research Center where we make Newsbusters. It is another birthday for our Curtis Hauk. Yes, his birthday is September 11. He turned 10 years old on that awful day. Not a great day for a party. So the the weirdest development this year was Team Biden deciding that somehow the president couldn't make it to New York City or the Pentagon for the 9-11 commemorations. That he was going to have to commemorate this in Alaska? Because he was traveling back from Vietnam? He didn't have to go to Vietnam. He... He could have left the G20 meeting and made it back to the continental United States. But Team Biden chose this option. So they were trying to, you know, round up some military folks in Alaska so he could have his remarks up there. At least it's still the United States. As usual, there was no so-called mainstream media criticism of this about the optics Now, we could guess reasons why this might happen, that Team Biden may have the strategy. They may want to avoid elongated discussion of the Afghanistan withdrawal debacle. Or they may want to avoid how somehow this aggressive Biden Justice Department was considering a plea deal for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the alleged mastermind of 9-11. It's just bizarre, at least politically, that there hasn't been a trial of these alleged 9-11 plotters, let alone an actual death penalty for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Now, apparently this process has been all caught up for years in whether these terrorism suspects were tortured. Obviously, in the, in the early days, right after 9-11, there was tremendous concern about Three, four, five, nine, elevens. That was certainly the dream of Al Qaeda was to do this repeatedly in the United States, um, and then it didn't happen. It really didn't take long then. Um, probably in, by two thousand and four, you know, George W. Bush went to war in Iraq. That turned the tide, um, and then I had written uh, by. June of 2005, I wrote something about this in National Review. It is truly sad that not yet four years after September 11, the 20th hijacker, in quotes, that's a guy named Zacharias Musawi, is bathed in sympathy in Time Magazine for being subjected to, quote, unquote, invasion of his personal space by a woman during interrogation. Our media no longer has any idea what torture is or what oppression is. Jokes aside, anyone who would list playing Christina Aguilera music as a form of torture has given up any seriousness as a journalist or a political analyst. Christina Aguilera is not torture. You know, maybe you joke maybe repeated listenings to uh, Gangnam Style or uh, 
uh, what, Hanson singing uh, Mbop, you know. But even then, these are the jokes we made way back when um, in other situations like the Waco siege that you would say, well, is it torture for you to play loud rock music? Well, you just can't compare this to, to actual torture. Um, it might be uh, trolling is what it sounds like. Uh, and then I noted that in NPR, on NPR, back in 2005, Time Magazine writer Adam Zagorin even noticed that this aspiring American killer, Zacharias Massawi, was shown pictures of 9-11 and forced to l- listen to widow interviews. This was apparently a terrible thing. This was torture. Now, they call Masawi the, the 20th hijacker because he didn't actually get on the plane. And he didn't get on the plane because he was arrested in it for an immigration violation about a month before September 11, I think on August 16. But he was definitely a member of Al-Qaeda based in France. And he, you know, he, they very much suspected he would have been on one of these planes. But this really matched the pattern of the Bush years, where the outrage they had was for our leaders, for our Pentagon, for our, you know, Bush administration, that the war on terror was this hot mess of human rights abuses. You know, this went right down to the complaint that some sensitive Muslim subjects were scared by caterpillars. I know that was one thing that Rich Noyes did. They, show, they terrified this guy with an insect. Yes, the idea of abuses was just a little overwrought. You know, especially compared to, oh, blowing up skyscrapers. This is why, that the whole spirit of that is why Obama came in to the White House and promptly put the kibosh on the whole terminology of the war on terror. Just the term itself was perceived to be Islamophobic. Now, 9-11 is personally unforgettable for me because at the time I was a White House reporter for World Magazine and because I was on the Beltway that day in D.C. coming in to go to a hearing on Capitol Hill. I think for the nominated drug czar, a guy named John Walters, I believe. And it, it didn't happen, obviously. Um, I was on the Beltway in Virginia when I saw, uh, you were already hearing on the radio that two planes had hit side skyscrapers. So I think I had DC 101 on, which was a rock station, still is. And they were running live audio of Peter Jennings on ABC. You know, this is when you knew that this was something earth shattering because the rock music station was playing news coverage, live news coverage. So the two planes had already hit in New York City. And I'm coming around the beltway and there's this large plume of black smoke. And I just instinctively knew that this was another terrorist attack. And I did suspect from where the smoke was coming from that it was the Pentagon. Uh, you know, because you, if you know the D.C. area, you would know the plume of smoke would have been further away if they'd landed at the White House or something. Um. I just knew, and so I made a, a decision then that I was going to go to the Pentagon. I was on the phone with my wife, this clunky Sprint 
cellular telephone saying, I got to go in there. I'm a journalist now. She did not love this idea of me going to the scene of a terrorist attack. Even though you one could say it was over, that particular terrorist attack. I did not see the plane plow into the Pentagon. You know, there were certain people that were on the highway that got that horrific vision of watching the plane crash into the Pentagon. I was not that close. But I came up uh, around 395 into Alexandria and straight up Highway 1 and went to the Pentagon. Turned right in. Nobody stopped me, maybe because of the chaos. But I went right in there and parked my car found some people standing outside the, you know, the wreckage and tried to ask them what was going on. And one of the ladies had said to me, they just finished reinforcing that side of the Pentagon that the, that the plane hit. And, uh, you know, people were shocked. And, and obviously people that were standing outside there were survivors. And I think that they knew they knew which part of the building it was, so they knew who to be concerned about, about who would be lost. Uh, what happened to me was, uh, after observing this scene and getting some reporting on the scene, I was then sh- told I could not move my car. I could not leave in my car. I had to leave my car there overnight. There at the Pentagon, they were eval- evacuating people you know, people in full military uniforms, civilians, janitors, and chefs. You know, they were the ones that were standing around. But, um, you know, hundreds discovered they couldn't contact their friends or loved ones because the wireless phones were, I mean, it was insane, right? Everybody was concerned about their, their loved ones or their friends, their neighbors. So there on the scene, fire trucks from every local jurisdiction in Northern Virginia were parked in a long row. Police ushered employees into the grassy hills surrounding the Pentagon. They placed yellow tape around the parking lot that read, this is a crime scene. Then we, it went further where we were evacuated into shopping areas. They had two nearby malls, Pentagon City and then further south, Crystal City. But what they were trying to tell us was, there is another hijacked airplane. This is not a safe area. That's why they were like, no, You can't leave in your car. Now, one of the reasons you couldn't leave in your car was because the traffic was a mess, right? Everybody was trying to get out of town. So I made the decision, since I couldn't move my car, I walked down about four miles or so, five miles, to the the offices of the Media Research Center back then um, as a former employee, um, I, I actually walked in there and they let me sit down at a computer and type out my story of what I had seen. Well, then I could just get on the subway and go out toward my house where my wife would come and pick me up. So I was okay without a car, at least overnight. But my wife was very concerned about this situation because she's like, did you lock the car, right? So you have all the normal things. That to me is all part of the normal thing. But I think my wife and my little, at the time, three-year-old girl were happy to see me just because, you know, I wasn't really in danger, you know. Um, It was after the the entire attack. Now, this other plane that was still in the air, of course, was the one that landed in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Um, And that one, they were hoping to, to land into the White House or into Capitol Hill. And the heroes on that plane made sure that did not happen. 
So I made this decision to walk down to the MRC, and the comedy of all of that was I was making more progress than the cars. So it was, I mean, the major highways, the minor streets, they were all just jammed up. I was, uh, as I wrote at the time, I was walking down the street with a uh, a guy who had retired to Bisbee, Arizona, and he was in town for a parliamentarian's convention, believe it or not. So he was on the hike with me down to Alexandria because he was going to meet his son down there. And he said, my son said, can you get to Alexandria by 4.30? And he said, I can get anywhere in the next five hours. Uh, especially because we, yeah, we were walking faster than the cars were going. So it was a very serious day. And in real time, I think the thing you really remember about how dramatic that attack was is that, yes, it was so dramatic with such a loss of life that we really did unite as a country. Democrats and Republicans could unite and sing together. Um, Peter Jennings, you know, was, you know, they were patriotic that day. Dan Rather went on late night television and said he would do whatever the president asked him to do. Now, this was George W. Bush we're talking about. That obviously wouldn't last because ultimately he would disgrace himself trying to get George W. Bush defeated. I think the way we figured this out, and I wasn't here at the time, but they basically suggested that there was maybe about two two months, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, where there was sort of a, a national consensus. And then, uh, you know, I think, you know, as you started to turn to thinking about the 2002 midterms, they were like, well, and then there was war in Afghanistan. So maybe after a while, that sort of, uh, universal feeling faded. And yes, so Peter Jennings then started talking about, you know, American atrocities on the ground in Afghanistan, and we're back to what we would call normal. But, um, but you know, anybody who was, who was on the scene, I mean, most people have a very distinct memory of what they were doing that day. Um, but in my particular case, I was actually on the scene at the Pentagon. So it does stick more clearly in my mind. And of course, the thing you always remember that it was crystal clear that day. It was a beautiful, sunny day. There was not a cloud in the sky. Um, And so such a sad day. Now, I don't know for you younger people where you've ever seen the Oliver Stone movie about the World Trade Center and some of the police or firefighters that got trapped in the wreckage. That's a good movie. It's not a. It's not a, a you know, an uplifting movie necessarily, um, but it, I do recommend it. I always thought that that was just about the best movie Oliver Stone's ever made. Not that I've seen that many of them. I was. I did see Born of the Fourth of July. Not didn't love that one, uh, but th- this one in particular I thought was was pretty faithful to the spirit of that day. So we, you know, we absolutely do remember the thousands of Americans who lost their lives on that day. And it is funny in a sense that we can't really say any longer that we have 
an Islamic terrorist threat like we feared back then. Um, you know, the, the Democrats and the media run around now saying that the main domestic security threat is the white nationalists and the, you know, the fascist, neo-Nazi, whatever. Well, you'd like to say, well, you wouldn't like to say, but you'd like to think there was a, another kind of threat. But the reality is, yeah, try to think of the last time we had a Fort Hood style attack or a San Bernardino or the Orlando thing. Um, we just really haven't had that, luckily. Um, and so one of the things we used to say, and especially when our book Unmasked came out, was um, one of the things the news media never wanted to cover under Trump was the way that they decimated the Islamic State under Trump. You know, the Trump people didn't prosecute Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, but they certainly took the fight to Islamic terrorists and Islamic State. And they just didn't really ever get credit for that. You know, they're all running around right now talking about Biden's great achievements. And usually what they're talking about is legislation he's signed. But we can all have a debate over whether that's a wonderful good, right? Passing a massive spending project called Build Back Better or whatever might have led to inflation. So was it really a great accomplishment? This is what tends to happen, though. This shows you the partisanship of the press, and that is the Democrats have accomplishments, and the Republicans, when they accomplish something, it's just presumed to be evil or ineffective or bad. Or it's not mentioned at all. They didn't really want to acknowledge that Trump had any achievements. You know, They certainly never wanted to mention what the unemployment rate was. Certainly not what the inflation rate was. Um, you know, they didn't really want to talk about the economy. They didn't really want to talk about what he had done um, against Islamic State. These sorts of things were just not discussed. And now, of course, we are at a phase in the 2024 campaign where it's quite routine for these people to sit around and say, why isn't Biden getting more credit for X? And then they try to say ridiculous things like, you know, everybody's better off or inflation's gone away or inflation's way better. And it's like a bag of tater tots is like 619. All right. I can remember when it was four. At least I was buying it on sale for four or 350. Could get it for two for seven. I am a grocery store junkie. So I'm really quite sensitive to inflation. I am not paying $7 for a box of Wheaties. So they're like, well, the box of Wheaties has only gone up to seven nineteen. That's progress. It's not progress. So I mean, I I think that there's always sort of objective measurements where you can say, well, unemployment is low, yes, and inflation is lower. But this is just the partisanship. Them trying to say, oh, Biden has all these great accomplishments. Uh, I I don't buy it, and I, and neither should you. But this is what we we come to expect. Now, I had one more thing I wanted to mention. I noticed this today. The Jen Psaki show, and she's about to have two Psaki shows, if you haven't seen. They're, they're bringing her on to Monday night to replace Chris Hayes on Monday night, which is weird. Um, uh, I th- believe it was Puck that said it was inevitable she would end up in prime time. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Like attack of the Stephanopoulos clones. We don't have enough. 
naked partisans. So um, anyway, she on her show on Sunday, she made these this snarky session about how apparently some strategists were having a meeting with Mitch McConnell's folks, the Senate Republicans, about how the term pro-life isn't helping anymore. Yes, obviously, Democrats can swagger around and say they have won a series of local elections or state elections on the abortion question since Roe versus Wade was overturned. Obviously, you can say that the red wave, so-called, of 2022 was curtailed by the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which, which dramatically energized the pro-abortion segment of the population. Uh, so anyway, these, uh, these pollster geniuses were suggesting, well, we should just use the term pro-baby instead of pro-life. There's nothing wrong with pro-life. What's, in, what's intriguing to me was Democrats and the media have always hated the term pro-life because they don't want to be anti-life. We'll, we'll say pro-choice and then call you anti-choice, but don't call us anti-life. That's just really unfair. Everything in the news media is about battling about the terminology. Well, this was just too much for her to let go. And that is the Republicans are suggesting, let's try the term pro-baby. This was the line that really stuck out to me where she started being snarky. I hate to break it to you, but if you call broccoli candy, it's still just broccoli. If you tie a really nice bow around a lump of coal, it is still coal under there. She's talking about a baby, an unborn human. You, If you put a big pretty bow on an unborn baby, there's still a lump of coal? They're comparable to calling broccoli candy? Where is this coming from? I mean, I can't believe the Democrats who think it's terribly dehumanizing to call a biological male a he and his. You're misgendering. Don't say Bruce Jenner. That's terribly dehumanizing. But to compare an unborn baby to a lump of coal? Oh, that's just a comedy routine. Saki insisted the branding isn't the problem here. It's hard to roll out an effective rebrand for a product that customers hate. I like the term customers because that, again, is women and their loved ones seeking an abortion are customers. Abortion is a business. Abortion is an industry. People make money committing abortions. Then they take some of that money and they send it to the Democrats. You know, Planned Parenthood is part of the Democrat fundraising machine. I like to call them the abortion industry because they are, or the abortion conglomerate, because they're very rich and powerful. And sometimes they're richer because they sell the baby parts, the body parts, the unborn babies. Well, you can't tell that story. Why not? Because it makes them look creepy. Because guess what? They are creepy. But this is just one of those stories where they're going to try to say, oh, the Republicans are calling themselves pro-baby. Then maybe they shouldn't be against food stamps for the kids. The only thing where the Republicans have restrained food stamps is just trying to say, 
you know, the income limits or a time limit. You know, they're not cutting food stamps, but that's just the way Democrats roll. You know, this is the games that they play. You're against paid parental leave. You're not pro-baby. You know, I'm used to all of this kind of rhetorical back and forth. But this also works the other way, is you're going to say you're pro-child, and yet you're for killing them by the hundreds of thousands every year, by the millions and millions over time. And yet you would claim to be the humanitarians. I simply do not get that. So, you know, obviously under COVID, they were trying to compare the death toll under COVID to Vietnam. They compare it to 9-11. They're never going to do that when counting the number of abortions. This is not a number they really want to discuss because it's merely a right to choose and you never count the bodies. So at the same time, I would commemorate and remember people who lost their lives in 9-11. I'm going to also speak up for the unborn children who have died over the years, and not all of them in week eight. There are lots of late-term abortions. They are not the majority of abortions, but there are thousands of late-term abortions that the Democrats and the media do not want to discuss. But we will discuss it here. We like the term pro-life. It is accurate. It's for saving the lives of the unborn. That's not a term to be ashamed of. And the policy of overturning Roe versus Wade is not a policy to be ashamed of. And Republican strategists who are trying to tell them to rebrand, you know, it's too cute. Stand up for what you believe in. That's what we do here at Newsbusters. And that's why when you want to know what sort of rhetorical tricks they're playing, babies or broccoli, you come to Newsbusters. Once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening.